Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Tom Shalhoub. I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. I'm Chris Foster. Betsy DeVos has spent decades fighting to improve kids' education before, during, and now after her time serving as President Trump's education secretary. It's the least disrupted industry in our country. You know, the, everything else that we have experienced in the last 25 years is very different than what we, you know, what we experienced 25 years ago, but except for education. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. A Texas Senate committee's been holding hearings this week as they investigate the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School. And part of it reveals more about the police response to the massacre. There was apparently an hour and 14 minutes of people in that classroom hoping they were going to be rescued and not getting rescued. So it's really a horrific story. And I'm David Marcus. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Betsy DeVos has been involved in Republican politics for most of her life, campaigning for President Ford in college, then on the county and state level in Michigan for more than 20 years. She's also been a big supporter of the charter school system in Detroit and a big supporter of school choice, period, serving on the boards of education foundations and political action committees. She's also been a big supporter of the charter school system in Detroit and a big supporter of school choice in general, serving on the boards of education foundations and political action committees. It was that work that led to her service as President Trump's education secretary until she quit the day after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. She writes about her time in the White House and her roadmap for what she calls common sense conservative reforms in America's schools in her new book out now. Well, the title is a direct reference to what Horace Mann said, the founder of the, quote, modern education system 175 years ago. He said that educators are entitled to look upon parents as having given hostages to our cause. The book is called Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. And I would contend that the last two years, uh, parents have been awakened to the fact that indeed their children have been hostage to their cause. And um, they, ha- you know, kids have been done a disservice in multiple ways over the last two years. But I would argue that it really has the pandemic highlighted the failings of a system that I and many others have known for many many years and have tried to uh, promote policy to change. Besides Republican politics that you've been involved in for decades, why education? Why was this your, when did did it start? How did this become your thing? Uh, When my eldest son was starting kindergarten, I looked around our community far and wide for school options that we might consider sending him to. Um, He's now 40. So this was 35 years ago in Michigan. Michigan, And, um, you know, Dick and I, my husband and I knew we were going to be able to send our kids wherever we thought was best for them. In the process of my discovery, 
discovery, I uh, came across a small faith-based school in the heart of Grand Rapids that serves the community around it. And uh, for every student there, I quickly realized that there were 10 or 20 other families who wanted to have their children there but couldn't, um, couldn't afford to send their child there because it was a tuition-based, it is a tuition-based school. Long story short, um, after getting involved as a volunteer, I quickly realized that just basically how we did the system of education was fundamentally unfair. Unfair to families who want to make that kind of a choice of that kind of education for their child, but can't because they can't afford it. And so that has led me to advocate and uh, get, you know, bump up uh, elbows with politics for many, many years. And you also come at it from a different perspective. Uh, For example, First Lady Joe Biden comes at this as an educator. You come at it from the outside, so obviously you have very different perspectives, and sometimes those perspectives clash. Yes, absolutely. And um, you know the the notion that we as a as a nation have committed to supporting and funding education for all students, um, I don't think the original intention necessarily meant that 175 years later we would be operating essentially the same system, same top down government run system that only if if you have enough money to make a different decision, can you choose something different? Uh, policies have begun to change in the last couple of decades at different state levels, and there is a s- small percentage of kids today whose families can make choices other than their assigned school. Um, but unless you, again, unless you have the resources, you are you are going to the school that's assigned to you based on where you live. And a lot of families in the last two years have been unhappy with the schools their children have been assigned to because they haven't performed. Um, The Supreme Court has now ruled um, in favor, a case out of Maine, uh, there was a challenge to a Maine tuition aid program that excluded schools that promoted religion. The program, um, um, in a nutshell, uh, kids in very rural Maine that didn't have a school to go to and weren't affiliated with another town, didn't have a deal or contract to send those kids there. Parents could get tuition money to send their kid to a, a public school somewhere else, or but not a religious school somewhere else. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court says, no, once that program's established, you have to open it up to all schools. I assume right. you're happy with that decision. Very happy. Uh, this has wide-ranging implications for other states across the country because of the you know constitutional issue here and the decision that the Supreme Court made uh, clearly on a, a six to three basis is very strong. And um, I have, uh, I, I'm very, very thankful and optimistic about what this can mean for kids. You've heard this over and over again. The argument against stuff like this is church and state. Why should my tax dollars, why should one's tax dollars subsidize your kids' religious education? Why should tax dollars be siphoned? That's number one. Number two, why should tax dollars be siphoned away from the local public school? And I assume you have stock answers at this point. Well, well, if education is about individual children and um, their ability to be prepared to, be, to become you know, responsible adults uh, and their families are making the choices and the decisions, then, uh, then it needs to follow that the families can make a wide range of choices and decisions. Um, because today, the schools to which kids are assigned very definitely have a religious ori- orientation. It could be secular or humanism, as we've seen unveiled um, right in class in in uh, you know families' living rooms via Zoom this last couple of years. Well, families ought to be able to have that opportunity to find education environments that match their families' values. It has to be able to include those options as well. 
the financial aspect of it. Nobody's saying you can't homeschool your kids. Nobody's saying you can't send your kids to Catholic school or uh, or whatever school you want. But it's the the tax dollars going toward it that that, that hasn't been hashed out, or that maybe being closer to being hashed out. Well, yeah, but we're all paying tax dollars to support education, and um, the notion that only if you're wealthy enough to opt out and do something different can you do that uh, is also one of mm-hmm. uh, unfairness and and uh, and and unjustness. And um, you know, again, the system that we've continued to perpetuate for 175 years, I've long maintained. It's the least disrupted industry in our country. Um, you know, the, everything else that we have experienced in the last 25 years is very different than what we, you know, what we experienced 25 years ago. But except for education. And so uh, I would hope that educators would welcome an opportunity to have more options themselves. Uh, the book is sort of your you know, thoughts on education. It's also part memoir. Uh, let's talk about how you got your previous gig. Um, you said you were surprised. It kind of came out of nowhere. Hey, would you like to be education secretary? Maybe. What do you mean? Um, you didn't even support Donald Trump in the primary. Um, how did that come about? Well, I, you know, to President Trump's credit, he really was looking for people who were ready to do things differently. Um, he knew from uh, discussion with him that I was very supportive of the agenda he articulated because he was the first president or presidential candidate to openly talk about advocating for a education freedom or school choice program. And that was right up my alley. Mm-hmm. And so the notion of being able to really advance that at the federal level and and uh, further that debate and that conversation um, was very appealing. And serving students in that way, uh, it was a it was a high honor. Yeah. Um, you write about like, like every administration. There's palace intrigue and you know stories about sniping and stuff like that. And you write about um, some problems with the administration. You say that there were too many generals, for example, too many people who thought that they were uh, the one, the decision makers, and you had to work around that. I think that's probably true in every uh, every administration yeah. in in every kind of. Uh, um you know, multi-person organization, you're, you're going to have to find the, the ways to make things work and get, you know, get the agenda accomplished. You were education secretary during the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida in 2018. Um, so you were sort of thrown into that and you tried to, you know, step lightly, but do what you could do. What role do you see the federal government having in school safety? Well, uh, subsequent to that tragedy, President Trump uh, appointed me chairman of a commission that was composed of three other heads of other federal agencies that had uh, a role to play in this. And we spent uh, a lot of time and took a lot of time to listen to people, to go into the field, to um, uncover and uh and, and bring together best practices around how schools and districts and states were addressing issues of safety for children. Uh, we put together a really comprehensive sa- school safety commission report full of uh, ideas and recommendations for states to consider, for local districts to consider. And, um, and it really is a, a wealth of resources. Much of what has uh, been cons- considered um, or, or recommended as a 
framework for a bill in Congress now was contained in that report. Those were recommendations we made uh, more than two, three years ago. And so I, I really do commend to individuals who are involved with these decisions at their school level to reference that. It's you know readily available, and uh, there's lots of really good, solid recommendations that of things that they should consider doing. Let's talk about higher education. Uh, it used to be, um, back in my day, uh, college was considered an investment. You go to college, and you pay for it now, and you get paid more later. That's still true to a large extent, but less so as the cost of higher education has outpaced salaries. But the idea of thinking about it as a financial investment may be going by the wayside. I, I think that's true to a large extent. But uh, again, I think the experiences of the last couple of years are having a lot of students rethinking that as they've sat in apartments they've rented and attended their classes remotely and paid full price tuition um, for that experience. I think there's a lot more questions being posed, and rightfully so. Uh, but it is true that the continued increases in higher education costs are really unsustainable. I mean, they They've outpaced uh, inflation. They've outpaced the growth of cost in anything else by multiple times. And, uh, and, and so the value proposition is one that really does need to be challenged. And uh, we need to really be supporting these other alternatives, uh, shorter term programs beyond high school that lead to meaningful employment and would still provide students opportunity to reenter higher education at some point in the future if they chose. But don't keep giving the message to kids that to go to four-year college or university is the only way to a successful adult life. Former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, uh, her new book out now, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education, Freedom, and the Future of the American Child. Secretary DeVos, pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Great to meet you, Chris. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is David Marcus with your Fox News commentary coming up. We know children were calling police while in the room, surrounded by dead classmates at Uvalde's Robb Elementary School. We know after two teachers and 19 children were killed, it took more than an hour for law enforcement to kill the gunman. We know the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety said after the massacre that the Uvalde School District police chief, who was the incident commander, thought the active shooter situation had turned into a barricade situation. But now that a Texas State Senate committee is holding hearings, we're learning more. And while they waited, the on-seat commander waited for radio and rifles. Then he waited for shields. Then he waited for SWAT. Lastly, he waited for a key that was never needed. Texas DPS Chief Steve McCraw told the committee the doors to the rooms 111 and 112, where the shooter killed everyone, couldn't even lock. But District Chief Pete Arredondo is seen on body camera footage trying out different keys to the rooms. The mayor of Uvalde, Don McLaughlin, says McCraw is trying to distance his own troopers from the response that day. He leaves out that no other agency, agency's officers even asked to approach the door, much less did it without shields. 
Colonel McGraw has an agenda, and it's not to present a full report on what happened and to give factual answers to the families of this community. McCraw told the Senate committee he's not trying to be hypercritical, but the facts are mistakes were made. We can't allow that ever to happen in our profession. This set, this set our profession back a decade. Residents have shown up to Uvalde City Council meetings outraged, demanding answers. Kim Hammond lives near Robb Elementary. If you are not willing to put yourself between a shooter and babies, how can I trust you to do anything right for my district? Among the information now coming out about the response is the heartbreaking detail that Officer Ruben Ruiz was detained and McCraw says his gun taken from him when he tried to go in to save his wife, a teacher who'd been shot and was dying. Well, there's a lot of nightmarish stories that are starting to surface about unwarranted delay, about confusion. James Trusty is a partner at IFRA Law and a former federal prosecutor. And certainly even a month later, I'd say the facts are evolving. But, you know, for instance, just recently, we've heard this latest fact that the door was never locked into this particular classroom. And so, you know, you've got officers in the hallway apparently waiting for a key for a long, long time when they didn't need a key. So, we don't have certainty, but we do know that there was apparently an hour and 14 minutes of people in that classroom hoping they were going to be rescued and not getting rescued. So it's really a horrific story. I think school shooting situations are so inherently stressful that they're ripe for miscommunication and for mistakes. But uh, this particular group and, and maybe perhaps the leader of this police department, Mr. Adorodondo, they're in a position where they, they had to make quick decisions and they apparently didn't. And that may rise and fall entirely with him, but that seems to be the crux of what's coming out of the uh, investigation so far. So the head of Texas DPS, right, which is a state agency, the chief of that, Steve McCraw, told a Texas Senate hearing that this was an abject failure by the Uvalde School District Police, namely the chief, Arredondo, and shockingly that all of the equipment, personnel, and tools they needed had arrived on scene within minutes. But uh, he says Arredondo was waiting for radios, then rifles, then shields, then SWAT. When we talk about what we've learned since Columbine, you know, how our law enforcement are supposed to just go in and find the shooter, did that memo just not get to Uvalde police or is it just, look, it was a fog of war, probably. And so there's some leeway. Well, I don't know about leeway. I mean, look, it's hard to know right now exactly what the training was for the school district police department, what they knew. I mean, the bottom line lesson from Columbine is that you can't sit there waiting for perfect conditions. And, and we ask a lot of our law enforcement when you think about what we're talking about here, you know, telling them to rush into where somebody is murderously using a semi-assault rifle. But the lesson from Columbine was that speed matters. And here, you know, again, all of the equipment, all the training in the world for the rank and file is wasted if the leader can't make a decision. And that seems to be where this investigation is headed. It's certainly what the comments were from the DPS chief that, you know, there was paralysis and it literally caused death. Jim, there are conflicting reports here, right? And you referenced the keys to get into the door. The timeline and the footage shows Chief Ardondo sort of like using some keys, like testing them out to try and enter the room. And he also apparently told the Texas Senate committee in a closed session that the doors were locked to rooms 111 and 112. But Chief McCraw said those doors could not be locked. We know from additional reporting and timeline evidence, the Border Patrol tactical team later used a janitor's keys to unlock the door to go in and kill the gunman. What do we make of these conflicting reports? You know, Chief McCrossing, these doors can't even be locked. Is he possibly wrong about that? And even so, 
there's even evidence that a forcible entry tool was brought into the school well before we got to this point. So why are we waiting for keys? Right. Well, let me. the starting point is there, there's obviously already huge conflicts arising in terms of what happened. So I think it's early to totally prejudge, you know, who's got it right. But I would say this, if you are a police chief, for instance, and it can be shown that you are not honest in your reports about your conduct, your decision making, that is a killer. I mean, that is a horrific aggravation to a, a national tragedy already to have a law enforcement officer cover their butt by being dishonest. So if that's how it plays out, I'm not saying we're there yet, but if that's how it plays out, yeah, there's a special level of scorn for somebody who operates that way. You're right, there are devices, there are um, weaponry that can be used to essentially burst through a wall. I suspect the whole idea of having the key if you could get a key, you know, and it's only the difference of 10 seconds or 30 seconds, then that can give you an element of surprise that would be very helpful trying to get mm-hmm. in, you know, or to ensure that it's not locked. And you could see circumstances where they could test to see if the door was locked, try to kind of sneak up and do that. But you could also see that being dangerous. So, you know, I don't inherently or immediately, I guess, second guess every tactical decision that's made during this incredibly difficult situation. But an hour and 14 minutes with children on the line, it seems like it's going to be very difficult for Adirondo to overcome and explain in any sort of sufficient way. Yeah, to that point, you know, McCraw was asked in that Texas Senate committee, why didn't Texas DPS just take over the scene and the response? And McCraw said, by law, they can't, that the most qualified agency that's in the lead remains in the lead and you run the risk of a lot of things going wrong if you kind of shift that should though texas dps just have broken the law i mean children were inside yeah i look that's something that's going to probably haunt them as individuals and and we should talk about the the impact of this for a minute but the starting point is you know Bad leadership is bad. Conflicting leadership can be worse. I mean, it's basically a, a creature of television and movies that you see people show up at scenes and go, I'm now in charge. And that's not generally how it works in real life. And it could create all sorts of chaos and all sorts of problems. So that's one level I don't think I would drop down to in terms of second guessing whether people without statutory authority should have just announced that they're taking over, you know, kind of a bloodless coup to take over law enforcement. I don't think that's particularly realistic, even with a long delay. There are other um, aspects of this, Jim. I guess Ardondo's attorney said that he didn't bring in his radios, believing that if he encountered the gunman, that he would want to have both hands free to access a, a gun. And as he's calling the Uvalde Police Department, this is according to the timeline, um, to tell them about the incident, gunshots can be heard being fired in the, in the background. It sounds like having a radio as the incident commander in an active shooter situation would be sort of a no-brainer. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and look, to the extent that his lawyer is saying these things, it feels a little like flailing, um, you know, kind of explaining delays that are not necessarily going to be explainable. But but I have to say, you know, it just brings me back to thinking about the rank and file guys. You know, these officers knowing now what happened, uh, I'm actually worried about these guys. I mean, I, I think that, you know, officers are by nature pretty tough customers, but to go through the combination of seeing this crime scene from hell and having, maybe unfair, but having this kind of self-reprimand of I could have stopped it, uh, that is torturous. And I'm I'm very concerned, long run in particular, but even short run, 
Um, and so I just don't want it to be lost on the fact that whatever happens legally, whatever happens in the court of public opinion, there's a, a whole lot of people suffering, including officers that were hopefully trying to do their level best to make this make this end, even if they had some poor leadership. After this incident, some comments on, on Twitter sort of went viral about how police officers don't have a duty to protect us, like an obligation, I should say, like legally, that while they have a legal obligation to protect the community at large, that in Supreme Court rulings, that doesn't necessarily apply in individual cases. Is that accurate? Well, I think it's a little bit of a crimped way to talk about qualified immunity. I mean, we enable law enforcement to act by saying we're not going to criminalize every wrong decision. But I think what the, those people are getting at is the idea of qualified immunity, which is basically that if they're acting in the course of their duties, if they're you know, not doing something that overtly is illegal to start with, then we're going to give them the protection against being bankrupted or jailed just because they end up making a mistake or a miscalculation. So you certainly could have a situation where the rank and file officers are protected because they were following orders. But the order givers have a little more liability because they may have been so negligent and so wrongheaded that it kind of crosses beyond that limit of qualified immunity. Yeah, finally, I think it, this kind of gets to my, my final question. You know, the Justice Department is investigating. What could DOJ do here with regards to the police department, if anything? Yeah, that's a great question, because we're talking about a different section of DOJ than we usually do. You know, when you have a shooting, a racially motivated shooting like in Buffalo, it makes sense that the Civil Rights Division of DOJ kind of parachutes in and looks at it and decides, A, are there criminal violations to bring? And B, whether there are uh, remedies that are needed for the local police. And there's a whole lot of kind of federalism questions wrapped into that latter part that we could talk about on another day. But in this case, what we're talking about is the community-oriented policing services. It's a very, really obscure part of DOJ. Most people don't know that a whole lot about it. I, I ran into it a few times while I was there. They are primarily a funnel for federal grants to local law enforcement. And the entire focus is basically making sure that police are doing kind of the best practices when it comes to community policing. So they have a pretty limited history of doing these specific types of inquiries. They generally are geared towards looking at the department's approach to community policing and not the real nitty gritty operational or tactical stuff that I think is the issue here. So the cops program is a little bit of a square peg ground hole. I just hope they contract the right people to do a very professional assessment. Jim Trusty, thank you so much for your time and your insight. We appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. David Marcus. 
What's on your mind? It was Voltaire who said that if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Well, according to a new Gallup poll, that need may arise sooner rather than later. Belief in God among Americans has fallen to its lowest level ever. Still a robust 81%, but the number has fallen six points since just 2017. So is a more atheist nation inevitable? American history suggests not. Our nation's past is marked with great awakenings or religious revivals. The first in the mid-18th century, the latest lasting roughly from 1960 to 1980. While we tend to think of large church gatherings and powerful leaders when looking at the history of these periods, what they did more than anything else was put a spotlight on religion and God in the public square. By the mid-1980s, America had spent decades removing religious symbolism and imagery from public life. This came in a state form with bans on prayer in school or the Ten Commandments in the courtroom. It also came in corporate form as brands veered away from explicit religious ideas in their ads. They became all Easter Bunny, no Jesus. So maybe it's no surprise the youngest Americans, those born after 1990, have the lowest belief rate at 68% and also suffered the most severe recent drop of 10%. Even a person just 10 years older was exposed to much more public religion as a child, nativity scenes outside of state houses and invocations before sports tournaments. They were the norm, not the exception. But a case the Supreme Court is set to decide on may swing the door back open to more public displays of religion and faith. A high school football coach in Washington sued for being placed on leave when he prayed on the field before games. The court sounded sympathetic in oral arguments, and should he win, it would be a new day for prayer in public schools. Another reason for optimism that God may not be on his way out is just how impressive it is that four out of five Americans still do have a belief in him. In some European countries, that number is as low as the low 50s. With the exception of liberals and young adults, the numbers are well over 70% for every other demographic group in the country. Even after all of the scandals of the past decades and the declining church attendance, that number is still pretty stubborn and suggests an America willing to stick with faith. But don't underestimate God. He's been here before, seen as people wander and stray for thousands of years. Sometimes, rationally, it seems inevitable that atheism must prevail, that science or AI will finally put the nail in the coffin of divine providence. But there are questions only God can answer about our souls, about death, about our meaning. Americans are still asking those questions, and I suspect they will be for a long, long time. I'm David Marcus, author of Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.